0: Hello and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 84. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Before we get into today's stories, I've got a bit of news to share with everyone. This isn't the typical poignant and arresting piece of journalism that you may be used to from giants like Fox News. It's just a little something we around these parts like to call Drabble News. Sydney, Australia. A blank-faced seven-year-old boy broke into a popular outback zoo, fed a string of animals to the resident crocodile, and bashed several lizards to death with a rock. The boy fed a saltwater crocodile, a turtle, four western blue-tongued lizards, two bearded dragons, two thorny devil lizards, and a beloved 20-year-old 1.8-meter adult female Spencer's guana, said zoo director Spencer Nindorf. Oh, for the love of all that is good and holy, not a Spencer's guana. Did this boy have no soul? The boy, whose deadly acts were caught on the zoo's security camera, was seen throwing the live animals to tarry the crocodile over the fence surrounding the crocodile's enclosure, at one point climbing over the outer fence to get closer to the giant reptile. In the footage, the boy's face remains largely blank. Alice Springs Police said they identified the boy, who lives locally, but were unable to press charges because of his age. Children under age 10 are not criminally liable under the law in Northern Territory. "'By all accounts, he's quite a nasty seven-year-old,' said Neindorf, who plans to sue the boy's parents. "'If we can't put the blame onto the child, then someone has to accept responsibility. "'The fact that a seven-year-old can wreak so much havoc in such a short time, it's unbelievable,' Neindorf continued. "'In my day, he'd get a big boot up the arse.'" "'Oh, God. Don't tell me Australia's getting soft on us now.'" "'Yeah, and since when did they retire their renowned arse-booting legislation, anyways?' You know, I don't know what kind of world this is we live in anymore, where we can't kick around seven-year-olds for bashing in two-meter Spencer's guanas. This is no ordinary guana, people. This is a Spencer's guana. A Spencer's guana, for God's sakes! I mean, Nindorf said it himself. By all accounts, this kid is nasty. Although, I doubt Nindorf got the crocodile's account, which would have probably been like, you know what, I think you people are overacting just a little bit, huh? I mean, kids are kids, you know. Really, y'all just need to give him another chance, you know, to to do it again. Oh, and can you ask him to hook me up with some marsupials this time? Thanks, bro. Well, this week we're doing things a little bit differently. We have the first ever drabblecast doubleheader, two feature stories, both by the same author, Michael Swanwick. Mister Swanwick is one of the most acclaimed science fiction and fantasy writers of his generation. He's received a Hugo Award for Fiction in five out of six years, an unprecedented accomplishment. And his has been honored with the Nebula, Theodore Sturgeon, and World Fantasy Awards, as well as receiving nominations for the British Science Fiction Award and the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Subterranean Press will soon release The Best of Michael Swanwick, a volume covering over a quarter century of his short fiction, ranging from his first two published stories, both Nebula finalists, to work published this year. Our first story of his is called Hush and Hark. I should mention that the artwork for this week's episode was inspired by this story, and we're using it with the permission of the World Fantasy Award-winning artist Jason Van Hollander. It, too, is called Hush and Hark. Check out Jason's website at jasonvanhollander.com. So without further ado, Hush and Hark by Michael Swanwick. She was called Mrs. Underhill, because that's where she lived, and I assumed she was some kind of hob, because she obviously wasn't human. The timid folk of the forest, the fays and voles and field mice and such, said that she was older than the world itself, but when I asked her, she only smiled and said, a lady never discusses her age. A storyteller may not earn much, but he mingles with the best company. One evening, we were sitting at her kitchen table, drinking herbal tea, when Mrs. Underhill sighed unhappily. This was so out of character that I immediately asked, what was wrong? Oh, it's bad of me, I know, she said. The work I do with roots and grubs and whatnot is so important. And I don't see how you could get along without me. But sometimes I miss my husband something awful. You're married? Oh, yes. I... Abruptly, she fell silent. Hush, she said. And hark. In an instant, she was at the door and out into the night. I stumbled after her. The woods were dark and still. I began to stutter a question, but she impatiently waved me to silence. Hush and hark. A great wind swept out of nowhere. It blew the mists away and parted the trees overhead, revealing the night sky in all her naked glory. Then my blood ran cold with fear. Something immeasurably vast and blacker than the void itself swept before the stars, annihilating their light. Cold it was, and merciless, too, the very embodiment of destruction. Fear went before it, and the extinguishment of all hope. Weeping, I sank to the ground, yet I could not look away. It's him, Mrs. Underhill cried, blushing. Oh, it's been so long. For one terrifying instant, I saw the thing in profile. Its shaggy head, the outline of its awful form. It reached out a hand that might have crushed the earth like a walnut. Then it moved the hand from side to side and turned away. Not now, the gesture meant but soon. Oh, wasn't that kind of him? Wasn't that sweet? Mrs. Underhill danced a little jig for joy. Wasn't it thoughtful of him to let me know our separation is almost over? Happily, she went back into her cottage under the hill. But as for me, I have not slept well since. Whenever I close my eyes, I see that cold, implacable hand closing about me. Whenever the night is still, I hear Mrs. Underhill's joyous cry of hush and hark. And then I toss and turn, and sometimes I scream. science Fiction, by Michael Swanwick. It's only the first sentence, and already the story's in trouble. No characters, no plot, no action. <sighs> what would the great Robert Heinlein do? Start with an ultra-competent protagonist. What would the great Cordwainer Smith do? Give him a distinctive name. What would the great Joanna Russ do? Hmm. Change the protagonist's gender and use her to interrogate the sexist assumptions of gender. Okay, we've got a heroine now. The brilliant polymath, secret agent, and fantasy identification figure, uh, Grimersery Cat Rider. But what about the love interest? Hmm. There's no time to introduce a new character, so she's in love with herself. She's a time traveler. Yeah, that works. And she's walking on a time-distant beach, hand-in-hand with herself. She gazes deeply into her own eyes, ecstatic that she's finally found somebody who understands her the way that she does. We do need a plot, though, and things are getting tight. So suddenly, she's attacked by dinosaurs. Cool. And these aren't just any dinosaurs, either, because this isn't the past. It's the future. They've been bioengineered to full human intelligence. Plus, they've got weapons. I mean, you don't get any cooler than that. In all the universe, there is no more terrifying a sight than a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a gun. This is the exciting part of the story. Grimursary pulls out her laser. Her lover, Grimursary herself, remember, pulls out a blaster. They fight. But when the battle is over, our heroine lies dead. Grimursary crouches over her own corpse, weeping. If only it could have been her, rather than her. The reader is left to work out the implications of Grimursary Catrider's timeline, and by implication, our own. So it turns out to be a pretty lame story after all. But it had dinosaurs. That's the great thing about science fiction. If a mainstream story sucks, it just sucks. But if a science fiction story sucks it still might have dinosaurs. With guns. I think I can safely say that if the Drabblecast had one reason to exist, it would be to run that story. Hope you enjoyed them both. Feedback for episode 80, Standing in Line, by Michael Simon, that we ran for our apocalypse-themed episode. This story got a big and positive response. The Brog said, I really like this one, even as a strictly scientific person with no belief in the afterlife. I think it's interesting to imagine the infinite ways it might be. Kevin Anderson said, At this point, I've listened to this episode more than a dozen times, and it would seem to be my favorite Drabblecast episode. The production of the Drabble was terrifying, and the main story was haunting and touching. I love apocalyptic and or large event stories, and these both just struck a chord in me that I really can't explain. I do know that if the apocalypse does come, I'm now going to be ready. I have a bottle of wine handy, and I've secured roof access. Camo Blamo had a few criticisms, one of which was, I couldn't figure out how the old man knew as much as he did. Wouldn't he have had just as much time to figure it out as the young family did? To which Anne Savoy replied, I had a little problem with this too, and the way I justified it for myself is along the lines of what other people have said here about the true ambiguity of the story. He doesn't actually know. He can be absolutely certain, the way that people with strong faith are certain about the things that they believe, and what he sees can seem to corroborate his beliefs. But that doesn't mean that he's right. It's just one possible explanation, one that he happens to be certain of. We had some other interesting theories come up about what really happened in the story. Everything from a rapture to the same thing that happened to Dr. Manhattan in the freaking awesome graphic novel, The Watchman. Which, if you haven't read by now, you really should. Well, that's all for this week. If you enjoyed today's story, consider sending us a donation via the PayPal button on our website, www.drabblecast.org, either one time or subscribe for $5 a month. This ain't no cheap operation, folks. Every little bit helps. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can share it with whoever you like. Join the Drabblecast community on our discussion forums, which you'll find linked off our main page to get you through the week till next Wednesday's story. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, what would Robert Heinlein do? The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink And the bartender shouts last round An hour ago this place was loaded